Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I read from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. With this brief reading this morning, and with the Lord's help and guidance, I propose to begin a, an exciting verse-by-verse study through this elevated and encouraging epistle, the 60th of the 66 books of the Bible, the book of Hebrews. And by way of introducing this sublime letter of the book of Hebrews to you this morning, it's my intention to try to give you a general overview, if you please, of this epistle. I know of no book that more clearly brings together the whole of redemptive history that reveals the unity of both testaments, that there is a consistent, coherent message in the Bible, that the Bible is not a series of different subjects like an encyclopedia that are disconnected from one another, but there is a single unified theme. The Bible's a book of one story. And the book of Hebrews, more than perhaps any other book in the Bible, brings that theme together in a coherent message. It is Hebrews that explains the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. The form of worship that was practiced under the Old Covenant sought to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, who has now fulfilled the law. Now, by the way, there are so many Christian people today who need that message because most every deviation from historic Christianity includes some form of keeping the law in order to please God. In other words, anytime you find a, a cult that is a non-Christian religion, we often use the word cult in a derogatory way, but the word cult simply refers to a deviation from the historic norm. Anytime you find a group of people who are worshiping in a way that is not consistent with historic Christianity, you will find most likely that they try to incorporate some form of the law in their worship to God. That is, they say you have to keep the Sabbath or you have to observe certain feasts and festivals or you have to eat a certain diet. Dietary restrictions and uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is often included in so much modern worship today because the idea is that you can earn God's favor, you can save yourself by keeping the law, by your works. Well, the book of Hebrews, my friends, tells us that the Messiah has come and he has fulfilled the law. And it's a very relevant and important message. And then this book shows the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. You've heard the preachers probably say that the New Testament is concealed in the Old 
and the Old Testament is rebuilt in the New. Well, the book of Hebrews illustrates the truth of that statement. And this book, may I say, perhaps more than any other, contains one of the most glorious portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. It pictures Jesus in terms of his supremacy, his preeminence, his glory. And I think that few things are more helpful to people who are down here struggling in the midst of life's pressures and burdens than to have an elevated view of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Hebrews focuses on the glory, the exaltation, the supremacy, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And let's look at this book as a whole for a few moments today and ask a few questions. First of all, who wrote it? Let's talk about the author for a minute. And the answer to that question is no one knows for sure. The author does not identify himself. Now, in most every other New Testament letter, the author identifies himself. Jude, a servant of God and brother of James, that's the way his little epistle starts. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in the book of James. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints of God which are at Corinth. Paul identifies himself. Peter identifies himself. But notice how the book of Hebrews starts. It doesn't start with the writer identifying himself. It starts this way. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. He starts with God. And that is, again, atypical of the New Testament letters. Now, there have been a number of possible suggestions as to who the writer, the human author, is. Now, we know, don't we, that ultimately the book of Hebrews has one author, the Holy Spirit. It's divinely inspired, just as every other book in the canon of Holy Scripture is inspired of God. God is the ultimate author, yet he used human penmen, human writers. Who's the human writer? Well, there have been a number of suggestions. Barnabas is, is one. Apollos is another who's been suggested because of the fact that the book was apparently written in Hellenistic Greek and Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. So he was in that Hellenized or Greek-speaking part of the world and was schooled in that. That's possible. Apollos is the author. Luke has been suggested as a possible author because of the literary similarity between Hebrews and the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. And then, of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul. The dominant position in Christian history is that Paul wrote this letter. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic, and I think that it would be a mistake to focus on who the author of the letter is to the point that we took a dogmatic position because he doesn't identify himself. And obviously, it's the message, not the messenger, that matters the most. So I don't think that it really matters in the final analysis, and I'm willing to allow some tolerance and leeway on other people's opinions, but I believe that the dominant position in Christian history that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, under divine inspiration, of course, is correct. This was the view of Clement of Alexandria in 215 AD. It was the view of Eusebius, a fourth century Christian theologian and historian of Caesarea. He was considered to be one of the most learned ministers of his time. Eusebius actually wrote 
about Paul's 14 epistles in the New Testament. You say, I thought there were only 13. Well, he was including Hebrews. And it was also the view of Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Christian philosopher and theologian, as well as many other leading figures in Christian history. But what is the biblical argument for appalling authorship of the book of Hebrews? And I think there are several hints that were given that are pretty strong hints. First of all, notice the last chapter of the book, Hebrews 13, verse 24. It says, salute all them that have the rule over you. The writer is closing out the letter with, these, with this postscript. And all the saints, and he says, they of Italy salute you. Now, whoever wrote it was in Italy at the time. And we know that Paul spent time in Rome. In fact, if this book was written during the 60s, about 60 AD, which many Bible students suggest that it was, it's evident it was written prior to A.D. 70. The writer here in Hebrews speaks of the sacrifice in the temple, the daily sacrifice in the present tense, so it was still ongoing. So this was written before A.D. 70, probably about 60 A.D. That was comparable to the time in which the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome. It coincided with his second imprisonment in Rome during the reign of Nero. And notice, if you will, that there is a subscript in some Bibles. Now, I have eight Bibles at home, and I checked them to see if this subscript was in them. The subscript is not divinely inspired, but it's something that's been added just to give us more information. Four of my eight Bibles have the subscript. Four of them don't. But perhaps your Bible at below verse 25, chapter 13, at the very end of the letter, has this subscript that says, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. Timothy is probably the secretary or the Emanuenses. It was written from Italy or from Rome. Written to the Hebrews from Italy, some subscripts say from Rome, by Timothy. Now I suggest that that's a pretty good argument that Paul was the writer because it was about the same time that he was in Rome. Timothy's with him, which is very characteristic of Paul, for Timothy was his young son in the faith, and Paul was very partial and very attached to Timothy. He loved him like a father would love a son. So that's a good biblical argument. It's anecdotal evidence, probably, or circumstantial evidence at best, but it is uh, pretty compelling, I would think. Another argument is, notice in verse 25 of chapter 13, he closes the letter with these words, Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, according to 2 Thessalonians 3, 17 and 18, Paul said, that is my signature, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is my token in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul said, this is my salutation that is true in everything I write. And you'll notice Hebrews ends with that salutation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's another biblical argument. And then you look at chapter 13 of Hebrews, and I won't go into it in detail this morning, but it is very similar to other passages in the Pauline epistles in which you have a series of terse, kind of pithy sayings. Pray for us. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. You know, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. And he gives us a series of terse, pithy exhortations. 
in this 13th chapter that is very similar to passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, quench not the spirit, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I think we see evidence of a Pauline style in chapter 13. I don't want to stay here too long because this is really an academic point. Who is the author? Obviously God by divine inspiration, but it seems to me there are some compelling reasons to say that Paul was the writer. And one reason I'm making the point is because as we study together, you're going to hear me say the Apostle Paul writes. And I just want you to know I'm willing to allow other opinions, but I'm pretty satisfied with my opinion. One more argument is in 2 Peter 3.15. Peter writes to the Jews, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and he says in 2 Peter 3.15, even as our beloved brother Paul wrote unto you, in whose epistles there are some things hard to be understood. Peter says that Paul wrote unto you. He says to the Jews. Now, you scratch your head, I scratch mine, we say, Paul was the apostle not to the Jews, but to whom? The Gentiles. You know, in Galatians 2.10, it says Peter went to the circumcision, and Paul went to the uncircumcision. He went to the Gentiles. But you see, Paul was a Jew. And do you remember how much he wanted to preach to the Jews? The Apostle Paul had a great passion and desire for Israel. In fact, listen to what he says, Romans 9, 3, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I would be glad to lose my joys in the fellowship of the church, my assurance in the gospel. I'd be willing to forego all of that and be a curse from Christ if it meant that through me, my national kinsmen, my fellow Jews could come to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we know today that as a whole, the Jewish people are still not believers in Jesus Christ, right? They're still looking for the Messiah. The Jews are still waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. We are people who say, you're looking for one who's already come. For all of the criteria or qualifications of the Jewish Messiah were met in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anticipated Messiah, and they're still looking for his first coming. But we are people who say he's already come once and fulfilled the law, and we're just waiting for him to come the second time and to take us home. So Paul longed for the conversion of the Jews. Listen to him in Romans 10.1. Brethren, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, if I were to ask you today, what is your heart's desire? You see, my heart's desire is that I would win the lottery, or my heart's desire is that my loved ones would be healthy. Or my heart's desire is that America would be free. Or my heart's desire is that I would get a promotion at work. Or we would be able to buy that new house. What's your heart's desire? Paul said, this is the one thing I desire more than anything else, is that Israel might be saved by the gospel. And my beloved, if you know that passionate yearning, that someone would be converted to the truth, that someone would be brought into the church, that someone's eyes might be opened so that they could see because the truth has set you free and you want them to enjoy the same gospel benefits and privileges that you've enjoyed. 
If you understand that, then you can understand why Paul, even though he was sent to the Gentiles, still had a heart beating with desire for the conversion of the Jews. And if he was not allowed to preach to the Jews with his lips, to say that he is the author of Hebrews means that the people that he was not permitted to address with his lips, God did give him permission to address them with his pen. So Paul preached to the Jews in the book of Hebrews through writing, if you please. And that's why one of the great features of this letter is that it's not just an epistle. It's a, actually a homily, a sermon. It's written in sermonic style. That's why he doesn't start by identifying himself as the author. He starts with God. And what should a sermon do? It shouldn't draw attention to the messenger. It should draw attention to the subject, to the God about whom the sermon speaks. So Paul starts with God. If this is truly one of Paul's epistles, then why is it so different from the didactic nature of Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Galatians, and so forth? And the answer to that is because it's not an academic epistle. It is a homily. It's an exhortation. And if Timothy was the secretary, it explains the fact that this letter was originally penned in Hellenistic Greek. Now let's move to the next question. Who are the recipients? If Paul is the author, and that's just my conjecture, but I think there are some arguments in favor of that, to whom did he write? And notice it's addressed to people called Hebrews. Now the word Hebrews is simply a synonym for Jews. The epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews, says the title in my Cambridge Bible. And more specifically, the Hebrews here are Jewish Christians. Now think for, with me for just a moment. For a Jew to convert to Christianity would be quite a courageous decision, wouldn't you think? If you were a Jew living in a Jewish environment, heavily influenced by Judaism, and you jump ship, and started attending the church on Sunday morning, on Lord's Day, instead of the synagogue on Saturday Sabbath. If you converted, if you changed churches from the Jewish church to the Christian church, don't you believe that perhaps your neighbors would banish you or shun you or that you would suffer some kind of recrimination? And I dare say that that's precisely what was happening on this occasion. Paul is writing to Jewish Christians and the occasion is that they're in a serious crisis of persecution from two sources. First, from their own countrymen, the friendly fire of persecution from their fellow Jews. Again, they were living in an environment that was still heavily influenced by Judaism, and therefore, they were seen as traitors and turncoats, Benedict Arnold's, if you please. And they were suffering the daily indignities and public abuse of ridicule and job loss. Some had had their property plundered. Others were suffering imprisonment. There are several references in Hebrews to prisoners. Prisoners. And the prisoners probably to whom he has reference are Christians who've been incarcerated or imprisoned for their faith. And some of them were even facing potential martyrdom. Now, we know that martyrdom had not happened as yet. He says, you have not yet resisted unto blood. What does he mean? He means that none of you have died as a martyr yet. None of you have given your life for the cause of Christ yet. We know that did happen later in Christian history, right? Some of our ancestors in the faith died the most horrible deaths of martyrdom as a form of persecution. 
They loved not their lives unto the death. That is, there were some things more important to them than their own health and safety. And they were willing to lay down their lives for the name of Jesus, for the truth of the gospel. Now, it's always an amazing testimony to love for country when a soldier is willing to give his life for his country. Or a police officer is willing to give his life for the badge and for his community. And for a parent to be willing to lay down his or her life to protect a child or a spouse. My, what a testimony of love that is. May I say, to die as a martyr for the cause of Christ. Most people would say that when it comes right down to it, I'm going to save my own hide, right? That's what the devil said about Job, you know, skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. In other words, the devil says when it comes right down to it, Job's going to protect himself. But you see, these early Christians were so convinced that God was real, that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. It was such a reality to them. It was not just something they did on Sunday mornings, but it permeated their hearts and their lives. And it gave them their identity, and it was so real to them that these early Christians were willing to pay the ultimate price. It's really mind-boggling to me. Because we're, we're living in a day of partial commitment of almost Christians. Remember from Acts 26, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? And Paul said, I would that thou were not almost, but altogether, such as I am. You've heard me say before that most people want enough Christianity to make them comfortable, but not so much as to make anyone else uncomfortable. Somebody says, preacher, I don't want to be a fanatic. Well, we're fanatics for the Carolina Panthers or the Duke Blue Devils or the Carolina Tar Heels. The best kind of fanaticism is to be totally committed to the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. To be addicted to the ministry of the saints. There's a, an expression like that in 1 Corinthians 16 that speaks of the household of Stephanus who are addicted to the ministry of the saints. That's a good addiction. When our hearts are aflame, with love for Christ, when our commitment is total, when we are altogether Christians. But what was happening in the book of Hebrews is these people who had jumped ship, as it were, from the Jewish synagogue to the Christian church, some of them lost their jobs. Now, think about an employee who goes to work on the next morning and the boss says, where were you at synagogue on Saturday? He says, oh, I have become a Christian. I've joined the church. And the boss is so upset with him that he fires or terminates his employment. He sees him as a traitor because their religion was everything to them. You are an enemy now. This was happening. Some of them had lost their jobs. In fact, listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Call to remembrance the former days. The apostle says, I want you to think back to when you were first converted. Call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, that is, after you were enlightened, you endured a great fight of afflictions. He's asking these people to think back to how hard it was when they were first converted. He says, partly while you were made a gazing stock, that means they were made a public spectacle, their neighbors and friends, when they walked down the street, instead of speaking to them, greeting them warmly, would sort of stand aloof and look at them and poke fun at them. They were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. 
He says, for you had compassion on me in my bonds, the writer says. Now, we, here's another evidence for a Pauline authorship of Hebrews, because whoever it was, was in prison. And he said, you had compassion on me in my bonds, and took joyfully, now this is a surprising sentence, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Some of them had had their homes vandalized, their goods spoiled. They came home one day and saw that their cupboards had been opened and all of their preserves and all of their dry goods had been spilled on the ground and been broken open and their goods were spoiled. They had suffered the plundering of their personal property. And he says, you took it though joyfully. Isn't that surprising? Somebody broke into your house and sprayed graffiti on your walls and took the items from your refrigerator and threw them on the ground and smashed the jars and unplugged your freezer so that the, the meats and vegetables in there spoiled. And they broke your mirrors and they trashed your home and they did it because you were seen as a turncoat, as a traitor, because of your faith, your newfound faith. Don't you think that that kind of pressure would, intimidate, would be very intimidating? Don't you think you would think twice about going back to church? And that is precisely what was happening. Now, this isn't so far removed from where we're living. Even though we are still free to meet and to worship, I think we would agree today. I hope we would, if we're thinking correctly and if your eyes are open, I think we would agree that our society is a post-Christian society today. It's becoming increasingly Antichrist, if America was ever a Christian nation, and I, I think there's a good argument to be made for the fact that America was founded based on biblical Judeo-Christian principles. You know, the moral fabric of our society is due to the Bible, to the Word of God, and the laws of America can be traced back in many respects to the laws of the ancient Hebrews, the Jewish people in olden times. So we know that we have had religiously minded people who've been in leadership positions. Many of our founding fathers were very pious and devout Christians. Others were deists, but yet we, we do see that there has been an underpinning of Christian influence in the American experiment. I think it's safe to say today that the majority of people, even though the majority still claim to be born again Christians, I think our churches demonstrate and the public sentiment demonstrates that for the most part, my friends, we are either 50-50 or the Christians are beginning to fall behind the secularists so far as momentum and popularity. I, I, I do believe that it's safe to say that America is in a post-Christian kind of era. And it's becoming increasingly anti-Christian, in which the mention of Jesus publicly is taboo, you know, it's, it's off limits. And in fact, there seems to be an animosity and an antagonism toward biblical principles, the teaching of the Word of God. And I can conceive that persecution would arise again before my life is over, perhaps in the lives of my children, grandchildren. I, I can conceive that it's probably closer than ever. I sure don't wish for that. I pray that if it's God's will, that he would be merciful, he would forgive the sins of our country, and that he would preserve the freedom that we have, the liberty of conscience that we've enjoyed to be able to worship him. I pray that'll happen. But imagine that, imagine living in the first century. You see, the Christians, we, we have such a comfortable idea 
our view after 200 years of American history is that Christians are accepted and that many people and most of our neighbors and friends and family at least give verbal assent to what we believe. You know, I mean, they say, yes, there's a God, one true and living God, and Jesus is the Son of God, and the Bible is the Word of God, and that's been the general consensus. But in the first century world, my friends, the Jewish Christians, many of them lived as street people. The pressure that they were under was tremendous. Many of them had their homes ruined. They suffered ridicule, mockery, indignity. And add to that the persecution that came from the Roman Emperor Nero. Now Nero was not your best national leader. Nero was more interested in the stage than he was political power. He wasn't really concerned with political machinations, but he was very interested in being popular and wanting the people to like him. He was very ostentatious. Nero bankrupted Rome. He abused the budget to the point that Rome was in a financial or physical crisis. He was in the process of building his own golden palace, much of it made of pure gold, but the empire was in economic distress. Well, Nero was so given to uh, luxury that he had taken some time off. He had taken an extended sabbatical, and while he was gone, a portion of the city of Rome burned in the Great Fire. And because the people were saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned, you ever heard that? He was over there in some foreign place enjoying vacation, you know, uh, while Rome is in crisis, Nero came home quickly. And to try to save face, he found a convenient target to blame the uh, great fires of Rome on. He blamed the Christians. He said the Christians set these fires intentionally. And of course, the fact that the Christians taught that the world would someday be judged by great fire became a convenient opportunity for Nero to pin the blame on them. And they were increasingly unpopular. He then set out on a campaign and he began to use them as human torches to illumine his gardens. Many of them were used as sport for the gladiators in the uh, Roman Colosseum. Others were thrown to the lions and the jackals and the wolves in the Circus Maximus. Some were roasted alive on gridirons. And it became a byword in that day that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, it was right during Nero's reign that Paul and Peter both were martyred. Paul was beheaded, decapitated by Nero or under Nero's decree on the Ostian Way outside the city of Rome in 64 AD. The Hebrews, the Jews, the Jewish Christians were seen as a threat to the stability of the empire. The Jews hated the Christians, their comrades who had jumped ship and joined the church instead of remaining loyal to the synagogue. And the Romans saw the Christians as atheists because they didn't observe the Roman pantheon. They didn't adore the gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire. They would not participate in the festivals and the pagan feasts. And therefore the Christians, many of them, my friends, lived under great hardship and duress. Now I don't know anything about hardship, I have to tell you. I had a headache one time and uh, I've had a few physical problems, but I don't know what it is to be put on trial for my faith. And I wonder sometimes that if that day ever comes, would I 
be like so many of these Hebrews and backslide and lapse and be a defector? Or would I die as a martyr? I don't know. If the government tells me that I cannot worship anymore, if the neighbors are against me, if peer pressure mounts against me, this is the situation in the book of Hebrews. Do you see why they needed to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up? Why they needed this preeminent, exalted view of Christ? This is a book then of encouragement. The pressure to recant and repudiate their confession of faith was great. Some had already lapsed. Others had become complacent and apathetic and were beginning to backslide. Some had forsaken the public assembly of the church. You read in Hebrews 10, 25, where he says, forsake not the assembly as the manner of some is. There were some who were saying, it's just not worth it to go to church. The dangers are too great. I don't want the repercussions. And almost all of the Christians in that day were discouraged and fearful in the face of the relentless pressure that they were under. In other words, some of the Jewish Christians had drifted. Others were drowning. And therefore, Paul writes Hebrews with this purpose to encourage them to persevere in the faith in the face of such ominous threats. Interestingly, in chapter 13, verse 22, he closes the letter by saying, suffer this word of exhortation. And that expression summarizes his purpose in the book. The purpose of the letter to the Hebrews is to exhort, and the word means literally to encourage. Suffer this word of encouragement. Now, do you feel that you need encouragement in your life? I do. I, I feel like I need encouragement. Somebody says, my spiritual gift is criticism. Well, uh, you're like so many others. There are a bunch of people with that gift, but uh, in my, how critical we can become. But I, I, I dare say there's a great need for encouragers. Every day, find somebody to encourage, my friend. And I'm not saying to flatter. Not to say, you are such a good-looking person. That's not encouragement. That's flattery. Most of us know that's not true, don't we? <laughs> Find somebody to genuinely encourage to say, I'm so thankful for your good attitude. Or I, Sometimes I think about how much you've been through and to see that you still have a tenacious spirit about you. You're still moving on a day at a time. You, you haven't given up or given in or given out. And you're just such an encouragement to me. Did you know just a positive word sometimes will lift the spirits of somebody else? Be an encourager, my friends, because everybody needs encouragement. But the greatest encouragement that you and I could ever receive is the encouragement of seeing Jesus Christ high and lifted up, the supremacy of Christ. And what he's going to do in Hebrews is show us that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. That's the first chapter you say oh the angels are important jesus is higher he's supreme to the angels he's superior to moses in chapter three the supremacy of christ is on display in terms of his elevated posture above joshua in hebrews chapter four he's superior to levi in chapters five through ten the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood of the Levites or the Aaronic priesthood. He has a superior covenant. There's a new and living way that he's given for us to live. The book of Hebrews, my friends, encourages the saints to persevere by pointing them to Jesus Christ.
It's a sublime book. I'm excited about studying it with you. I'm going to do my best with the help of God not to become boring and stagnant and just be mechanical and clinical. And I want to point you to the Lord every sermon. Every sermon. You say, oh, Brother Michael, are you saying we're not going to be finished with Hebrews until the year 2087? <laughs> I hope we'll be through before then. The point is, what better things do we have to do than to study and learn the Word of God and through it to see the God of the Word? I believe that if you and I have the right attitude, that it can certainly be a time of growth and a time that we look forward to each week. And I hope and pray that as a church, it will help us to focus more on the Lord and to actually worship Him as we go forward from this point in our lives. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also He made the worlds. What a wonderful sermon the book of Hebrews is. May God bless it to our understanding and edification as we go forward is my prayer. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives in peace for me. My name is raven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in them he stands, no tongue can in me then depart. No tongue can in me then depart. listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.